Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. back to another episode of Movie House Memories, the podcast where we look back and review the films that we think are the most important films in cinema history. I'm Patrick, and with me this week are two people who spent a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters. First, he's the resident lumberjack and the man who sees symbolism as cornflakes. He's one of the co-hosts of the Criterion Critics and Lunchtime Movie Review podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network, and his own host of his own YouTube channel, Viewing and Reviewing, which you need to check out for his short, little 10 to 11 minute film reviews. Bobby Taylor. And we used aluminum bats where I'm from when we played baseball for distance. (laughs) Well, I, I think he was just trying to hit a foul. That's all he was trying to do. I'd just like to make sure that I'm not invited to any of his uh, dinner parties in the future. Also with us, he's one of the co-hosts of Male Bonding, the James Bond retrospective podcast, which once again finished off our review of the last James Bond movie for now. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at HeyBucker, Matt Palmer. I never thought I'd be sharing a podcast with a WAP and an Englishman. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Which one of us is Italian? Taylor? I don't think Taylor is. Uh, definitely, I'm Irish. Oh, good man. Good man. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome, everyone. It's always great to start off with a racial slur. <laughs> Before we get started, first... Let's apologize to everyone of Italian-American descent. <laughs> but, all right. We'd like to thank all returning listeners to the show and welcome all lo- new listeners to Movie House Memories. Uh, thanks for downloading us and giving us a try. We appreciate appreciate your time and attention and hope you keep, keep on listening and following us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, you can now subscribe to our account on YouTube, where we're posting our podcasts exclusively. Once there, if you give us a, uh, if you subscribe to our account and ring the notifications bell, you can get updates as, w- as to when we post new material on the website. You can then you can give us a like or a dislike, or potentially leave a comment about either our opinions, our the film that we have chosen, and or a film that you think we should review as one of the top 100 films of all time. Of course, we always like the uh, feedback that is positive, but we like we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show, even if it's negative. Now, with a horrible business out of the way, let's get on to my next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, 1987's The Untouchables. And I've got a summary. Can you tell me a story? The year is 1930, and Prohibition is in full swing. 
The bootlegging world of Chicago is ruled by notorious gangster Al Capone, who not so secretly controls most of the legal and illegal enterprises in the Windy City. The Bureau of Prohibition dispatched forthright agent Elliot Ness to Chicago with the task of halting Capone's illegal activities. However, Ness underestimates the corruption within the police force and soon finds that his efforts will always be thwarted by stooly cops on the take. Ness has a chance encounter with a veteran Irish-American beat cop named Jimmy Malone. Malone gives the inexperienced Ness some sound advice, which leads Ness to offering Malone a chance to join his elite squad. Although Malone despises the corruption in the city, he hesitates before ultimately joining Ness's crusade. Malone instructs Ness not to use trained police officers, and the two men head off to the police academy where they successfully recruit crackshot Italian-American trainee George Stone, real name Giuseppe Petri. Petri. Once back at the station, Ness learns that the Bureau has also sent an accountant named Oscar Wallace to assist him in his investigations. Once together, the four men successfully raid a Capone liquor warehouse in the city public library across the street from the police station. Ness is flabbergasted as to the, the location of Capone's whiskey storage, but Malone explains to him that everyone knows where the alcohol is. It's just a question of who wants to take on Capone. The raid garners Ness and his men positive press, and the newspapers dubbed Ness and his group the Untouchables. However, Ness's success draws the anger of Capone, who kills the gangster in charge of the raided warehouse as a warning to his other men. He then proceeds to attempt to bribe Ness by using one of the city's aldermen as the go-between. Ness refuses the bribe and vows to the city official to take Capone down. Wallace begins looking at Capone's financial records and discovers that Capone has not filed an income tax return in four years. Wallace suggests building an income tax evasion case against the gangster, which causes Ness and Malone to roll their eyes. Later, Ness and his family are threatened by one of Capone's henchmen, Frank Needy. Ness gets his pregnant wife and daughter safely out of town, and Malone informs Ness that he has received an intel from a secret source that Capone is going to be bringing a shipment of alcohol in from the Canadian border. Capone and his men fly up to the border and work in tandem with the Canadian Mounties. The border raid is a success, and Ness and his men seize Capone's whiskey shipment and his bookkeeper named George. Wallace finds a records book with detailed payments to various people. Wallace informs Ness that if they can get George to identify any monies that are being provided to Capone, then they could arrest Capone for income tax evasion. Malone uses a ruse to trick George into cooperating. Once back in Chicago, the district attorney announces plans to indict Capone. Wallace is charged with escorting George to a secret location for the bookkeeper's protection. Needy dresses as a police officer and executes George and Wallace by shooting them both in the head while they're in the elevator. Ness becomes enraged at Capone's brutal response and rushes to Capone's home at the Lexington Hotel to confront the gangster over the murders. Malone intervenes and stops Ness from getting into a gunfight with Capone's men. Once back at the station, the district attorney informs Ness that he's going to drop the case against Capone for a lack of witnesses. Malone tells Ness to stall the DA so that he can find out information on the location of Capone's head bookkeeper, Walter Payne. Desperate to keep the case against Capone alive, Malone goes to police chief Mike Dorsett for information on Payne. Dorsett has secretly been providing information to Malone throughout the film, but refuses to help Malone again. The two older men fight until Malone gets the upper hand. Malone threatens to kill his friend unless he gets the information he needs, and Dorsett eventually reveals the information to Malone. Later that night, 
Malone is tending his injuries at home when he's attacked by a knife-wielding enforcer of Capone's employee. Malone easily handles the hitman, but he is caught unaware by Needy, who guns Malone down. Ness and Stone arrive just after the shooting to find a nearly dead Malone telling them to head to the train station to stop Payne from leaving town. Malone dies right after he demands to know from Ness what he is prepared to do to stop Capone. Ness and Stone head to the train station to apprehend Payne. The pair engage in a shootout with several of Capone's men who Ness catches unaware. Stone kills the last henchman who attempts to use Payne as a human shield. Payne agrees to cooperate with Ness's investigation. Several weeks later, Payne is testifying at Capone's trial. Ness and the DA observe Capone appear to be uninterested in the trial. Ness observes Needy wearing a gun in the courtroom and has the bailiff escort him out of the court. While searching Needy, Ness discovers evidence on the hitman that implicates him in Malone's murder. Needy shoots the bailiff and attempts to escape from the courthouse via the roof. Ness follows him. At one point, Ness has the opportunity to kill a defenseless Needy, but he decides against it, sticking to his moral code. A few minutes later, Needy admits to killing Malone and insults the memory of Ness's deceased mentor. Needy tells Ness that he will never be convicted of Malone's murder. Ness responds by throwing Needy off the roof of the courthouse and killing the criminal. When Ness returns to the courtroom, Stone informs him that Needy has a list of all the jurors in Capone's case and amounts that they have been paid. When the DA and Ness attempt to convince the judge to declare a mistrial, the judge refuses. Ness asks to speak with the judge alone. A few moments later, the judge orders his bailiff to replace the jury with a jury from another courtroom, which effectively destroys Capone's bribery efforts. The DA asks Ness what he said to the judge, and Ness tells them that he told the judge that his name was in Capone's record book. The DA tells Ness that it is that is not true, but Ness states that he knows, implying that Ness gambled that the judge was on the take. Chaos ensues in the courtroom as an enraged Capone demands justice. Capone's attorney suddenly requests to change Capone's plea to guilty, and Capone responds by punching out his attorney and exchanging words with Ness. Shortly thereafter, Ness leaves the courtroom victorious. Capone is later convicted of tax evasion and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Ness closes down his office and says goodbye to Stone, the last surviving member of the Untouchables. Ness gives Stone Malone's St. Jude medallion and his call box key as a farewell present. As Ness leaves the police station, he is approached by a reporter who asks the federal agent what he will do if they repeal prohibition. Ness smiles and says, he'll have a drink. And that is The Untouchables. Uh, films are influenced by the times that they are made in, and we look back at some of the big news events in Lori Flores's headlines of the time, once again, brought by me, unfortunately for all of you. The Untouchables was released in June of 1987, so I kind of tried to focus on some of the big news events. On June 8th, the New Zealand Nuclear Free Zone Disarmament and Arms Control Act was passed, the first of its kind in the world. On June 11th, the Conservative Party of the United Kingdom, led by Margaret Thatcher, was re-elected for a third term at the 1987 general election. And on June 12th, uh, during a visit to Berlin, Germany, United States President Ronald Reagan challenged uh, Soviet General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall, which obviously came about shortly thereafter. On June 17th, with the death, death of the last known individual 
the dusky seaside sparrow, a subspecies native to the U.S. state of Florida, became extinct. And that's my only death and destruction uh, going with the news, keeping with Lori's usual thing. And then on June 30th, Canada introduced a $1 coin nicknamed the Looney. Uh, born in 1987, on January 15th, uh, wrestler Kelly Kelly was born. On January 20th, actor Evan Peters, uh, best known for uh, the X-Men, uh, was born. On February 9th, actor Michael B. Jordan was born. February 20th saw the birth of actor Miles Teller. And on June 17th, uh, singer and rapper Kendrick Lamar was born. Notable deaths in June of 1987. Uh, June 17th, American actress Geraldine Page died of a heart attack. On June 22nd, Fred Astaire, best known uh, for his singing and dancing throughout the early days of Hollywood, passed away of pneumonia at the age of 88. And on June 24th, uh, American actor and comedian Jackie Gleason uh, passed away from colon cancer. Uh, movies that came out in 1987 were Three Men and a Baby, Lethal Weapon, Fatal Attraction, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Witches of Eastwick, and my pick for one of the greatest films of all time, The Untouchables. And that is the news for 1987. All right. uh, Starting with the casting, as we usually do, uh, and the lead in this film, played by a relatively inexperienced Kevin Costner, in at least in 1987, playing Elliot Ness. Uh, Bobby, I'm going to start with you. Uh, What did you think of Costner's performance in this film? I thought he did a really good job. I saw that his filmography, this was his last, basically, ensemble, uh, where the the ensemble was as famous as he was. That same year, No Way Out came out, and then Field, uh, I'm sorry, Bull Durham came out the very next year. So those were where he became the leading man that Hollywood always knows and loves. But I thought he did a really good job. Um, I, I don't know that he was necessarily fantastic at the role, but I thought he he carried the role well. He was uh, he was debonair. He was uh, he was innocent uh, until he was basically challenged by Connery's character to to grow up and actually have to get a little dirty to fight the crime that he was going up against. So, yeah, I thought he was excellent and uh, he, he was a, a wonderful lead for the, the untouchables. He looks so young. <laughs> I guess he, he was. He did a good job. I, I, and Kevin Costner I, is good when he he's kind of in that range, in that wheelhouse. You know, whenever he has to to emote, I think he starts losing it quickly. But if he can kind of be contemplative and and intense in his own way, I think I think it works. And he was there for most of the the role in this one. So I liked him. I, I think you could have found people who would have done it better. But I, I liked him in this one. You know, this I remember Costner from Silverado. That's when he broke through to me. And I'd seen that years before this. And I I really liked him in Silverado. You know, it was is weird that I back in the day, I thought he was very uh, trying to think of a word stoic, uh, stiff, if you will. But I also think that's the character of Elliot Ness. He's pretty stiff. You know, he's rigid in his morals and his belief. And I think that that I think he does a good job now as an adult. I look back at it and I think he does a good job kind of conveying that. You know, I, I agree with Matt that there's a wheelhouse for Costner. And I, I think he's kind of our generation's Gary Cooper. 
and he fits very much into that mold of Americana, and that's why I like him in things like Untouchables, uh, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, uh, Dances with Wolves, and I don't like him in such things as Robin Hood, (laughs) Prince of Thieves, even The Bodyguard. I I just don't think he fits those rules. I think he's very much the the heroic character and very and he doesn't play darkness very well although you know i have i have not watched yellowstone and i've heard that he's excellent in that uh, to this point in time it's something i want to get around to so maybe he's developed a, a little darkness to his character but i really back he in, did mr brooks mr brooks he was a killer yeah it was a, but mr brooks was okay i know he got a lot of acclaim for it but it's not one of my particular favorites for him i mean he's he's played some other killers but uh, you know like I, I he just to me like something like robin hood or Waterworld. I'm trying to think of something else over the top. You know, like open range. I mean, Americana, uh, westerns. He is like he he is the western actor of kind of our gen, our generation. Yeah. I mean, he he does very well. Wyatt Earp. Yeah, Wyatt Earp. Mm. Um, I mean, he he does very well. Even the Postman, even though that's supposed to be a futuristic film, it's essentially a western. It's just way too long. I like that movie. I I, th- I think it's a decent movie too. It's just I wish it was a half hour shorter. So I wish it was. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I, this movie was practically a western, to to a large extent. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I, I I don't disagree with you on that. But uh, what about Sean Connery uh, playing uh, Jimmy Malone in this? I I think his performance was iconic. I remember him just I think for how old I am for this more than I did for James Bond for a long time. I think he he was like the crusty old you know, old world cop in, in my mind growing up. And I think he just, um, he just really sunk into this role and, and nailed it. I, I agree. I, this is the, one of the first times that I had seen Sean Connery as an older man. I'd seen some of his younger roles, uh, when he was Darby, o, uh, Darby o Gill and the little people, you know, I mean the Sean uh, or the James Bonds, obviously he's, he's somebody that, that we all have seen in different age at, at different times in our, in our filmographies. But yeah, I came into him around the mid eighties and he had just started to get older this is amazing. I thought he was just like Matt said. I think he was just incredible in the role, and I think the fact that we have somebody that could play an iconic character that starts off as a flatfoot. I mean, he's, he's just a beat cop, and he, if they didn't have his character coming in and kicking ass, you know, well, his own the Untouchables, teaching them how to how to fight corruption, uh, the dirty way. I really, really liked it, and I think that's why he won the Oscar for the role. It was an, a much deserved Oscar for this for this wonderful character. Well, I'm going to agree with what you both have said. This is an iconic role. I mean, this is this is one of the epit- best performances of Sean Connery's career, and 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 that's saying a lot when the guy is such, so associated with beginning the James Bond legacy, if you will. He spun this off into a kind of 10 or 12 years of really kind of Hollywood gold where I think he did essentially nothing but really, really good projects with, I will qualify, The Avengers and like 1998 or 99, the only film that I've ever turned off and never gone back and finished ever again. <laughs> 
but uh, but he, uh, you know he he made a lot of well let's say shit in the early eighties. I mean he, he the 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 uh, Never Say Never Again was not a great Bond film. Uh, Outland was not a really really good f- film. Wrong is Right was not a really good fr- film. Highlander is not a really good film. I mean especially. So- <laughs> Since he's supposed to be his character, well, yeah, he's Spanish with that strong Irish accent. I mean, but after this, he just, I mean, just he racks up just a continual series. You have The Hunt for October, you've got Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, Um, you got uh, Medicine Man. I mean, you got a long series of just even Rising Sun was a, a, a really decent film, it's not a bad film at all, but. He just cranks out hit after hit or after hit for about ten or twelve years, and then there start to starts to go downhill. You know, I know when we talked about him back when we reviewed Finding Forrester a couple of years ago uh, about how it's just so good to see Sean Connery in a film because he doesn't make them anymore, and it's just so pleasing to see him in character. And Finding Forrester is one that I had not seen a lot of. I'd seen it once or twice before. Bobby chose it and we reviewed it. This is one I've seen many times, but I love this performance. Everything about this performance is just, it's like the perfect Connery for me. You want to make sure to correct what you said. He's Scottish, not Irish. Sorry. Oh, I apologize. How could I do that? Oh my God. He's turning over in his grave right now that I said that. Oh, some people would be really upset with you. Yes. No, they should be. They should be. Well, (laughs) so that he was a very, very, uh, very proud Scotsman. The fact that I call him Irish and I'm Irish. So, um, that, 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 Dude, I apologize, Sean. Sean, I apologize. I won't happen again. But all right, what about our third lead, Robert De Niro playing Al Capone? I thought he did a really good job. He played Al, uh, Robert De Niro playing Al Capone. I mean, it's not something any that we haven't seen before. And as a method actor, he he played it real well. I understood that he didn't have enough time to gain the actual weight that Capone had for the the role like he did in Raging Bull and stuff like that where he would fluctuate his weight. But I thought he did a really good job. I I still saw Robert De Niro playing the character more so than I saw Al Capone. But in a film like this, you have to have somebody play the heavy and I thought he had the charm, he had the the mobster mentality i guess would be the term that i would say and he had that down pat uh, already from the godfathers and i i just think he did a really good job i don't think that he was as iconic as sean connery but i think that de niro wasn't a very good choice and i think he pulled it off really well i think de niro is kind of wasted in this role i like i like bobby said you know robert de niro playing he played robert de niro playing al capone he he just kind of he had a few moments, but f- the whole thing felt kind of stereotypical, and I th- I think what they set him up for just kind of lacked depth. So I I don't want to blame De Niro, but I I think um, the character was just written too much as a heel, and they didn't develop it well enough for his performance to really be memorable to me. You know, granted, I've picked this as my one of my top films of all time, but I, if I think this film has a weakness, it's the Capone character. And it's not that Robert De Niro does a bad job. It's that there was a lot more complexity to Al Capone. And I thought that they 
wrote him and had him played as essentially one dimensional. Uh, and I mean, a, a, a mustache twirling bad guy, you know, who loses his uh, anger. He gets angry and just lashes out around him. And they, they play him throughout the film like that, which in reality was not Al Capone. Apparently Al Capone was very, very calculating and never threatened or tried to have any of Elliot Ness or his untouchables. There was never any hit on them because he understood that if he took out a federal agent, that the feds would come down and rain hellfire on his uh, organization. And so he played it smart and left them alone. Uh, and, uh, the, the, you know, the, the way he's, I want him dead. I want his family in the ground. I want, you know, it's just, it's just it, it, that, that is my my one criticism criticism of this is that I would like to have seen more development and more character characterization uh, you know character development rather than just a character if you will for the Capone um, element. I think that might be why we're struggling a little bit. The screenplay was written by David Mamet based on the the Ness uh, uh, manuscript yeah. from uh, published right after he died and I, the thing that I was noticing about it was the the untouchables the four untouchables when there were really 10 I think they were pretty well written with the exception of maybe stone was a little underused but the the bad guys were they were kind of like paper dolls I yeah. mean, you just kind of cut and paste and that includes the Capone character. They were they were stereotypical mobsters rather than, like you said, a, calcu- a cold, calculating, evil empire. And and this guy's the the full blown bad guy. I just I think that De Niro was shortchanged in that. I think he could have played Al Capone really well if he would have had a better script. No, I I think. Without question, De Niro has the chops. It's not a question yep. of that. And I I w- was excited about the prospect of De Niro playing Capone. It just, I think, in the reality, and, and I think it was just, uh, and, I, and I love David Mamet. I, I think it was the script. It was they decided to focus on Ness and his group, and they just needed, you know, paper dragons to, to knock over, you know, and that's, uh, you know. All the bad guys, with the exception of Needy. I mean, Needy's probably the best written, you know, the, the and even still, he's still somewhat one-dimensional. But we get more as to his cold and calculating nature, uh, nature than we do of Capone's cold and calculating nature. But even that, based on, I mean, I read up on the history of these guys. Nitty lived for another 15 yes. years <laughs> after this movie was set. And and to, for them to jump, I mean, that's what I think is historical here. I know they were trying to make a movie. They made an exciting movie, but the nitty character did not have to be the character that they threw off the building. He could have. It could have easily been any other schmo that was in under Capone, and nobody would have made a difference whatsoever. To actually give a historical character that literally took over the Capone. A mob for the next decade is insane. I just that's the part where I really think that they dropped the ball. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you take an historical figure who lived 
and ultimately killed right. himself, but live for well beyond the Al Capone years uh, and make him the henchman. Oh, and he was part of the Capone organization. Uh, sure. And then had him just randomly killed when you could have wrote any character into that. You didn't need to pick That's... that one. And it seems kind of odd. Yep. What about symbolism and hidden meanings here, Bobby? Well, I I have a couple, but they aren't all that great. <laughs> The key on Connery's keychain and the Saint of Lost Causes um, medal symbolized the linchpin to create Ness's untouchable squad. With Connery constantly training, badgering, and bullying the team into a group of hardened enforcers strong enough to take on the worst of the worst, he was the key to their original success as a unit. Uh, the, the train station shootout, I guess is the term. Uh, the baby carriage during the train station represented a lost innocence if the bookkeeper escapes and tragedy would strike. But Ness offers first to help the woman and the baby. Then when all hope is nearly lost as the baby bounces down and nears the floor, by working together, Ness finally has the support he needs from Stone, who not only saves the innocent baby but saves the bookkeeper to testify at trial. Uh, the bribe offered to Ness that he refused on principle and threw back at the alderman ended up symbolizing the real-life Ness's never-ending financial problems by throwing good money at bad investments. And then lastly, I have uh, – which may or may not be symbolism, but Nitty's white suit always represented Capone's white knight against the untouchables. Nitty always seemed to save Capone whenever he was getting burned worst. It wasn't until Ness destroyed the white suit and the criminal element wearing it by throwing Nitty off the rooftop and uncovering the corrupt jury list that Capone finally got what he deserved. I mean I don't have anything to add to that. I think that was was generous for for, uh, what the movie was trying to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, there's obviously some symbolism. I, I think with the baby carriage and that whole sequence, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of symbolism. But uh, this, to me, seems most of the time very opaque. <laughs> it seems to be very mm-hmm. crystal clear and what they're trying to communicate as far as characters and characterizations. You know, uh, needy. It, the the white suit is one of the few that I'm going. Ah, that's a choice. You know, and I, I and I've never quite understood what choice you were trying to make with that because especially with a guy who wants to blend in as much as possible so he's not seen as the obvious threat a white suit does not seem to be a suit that necessarily blends in at night outside Connery's yeah (laughs) yes exactly but but it also draws the attention to the eye so it may have been okay we want the audience to be looking at this character we want the them to recognize the threat even though the characters in the film may not see the threat for what it is well i feel sad because billy drago who played nitty was excellent yes i thought he was so slimy he was really good it was just it was yeah, the wrong was. name it was the wrong name that's all yeah all right matt what about your moral universe well, I don't think this movie has much subtlety <laughs> to it. I think a lot of it pins on what seems like the movie's l- l- large indifference to prohibition or even the consumption of alcohol. You know, you even have that comedic uh, drink from the barrel on the on the the bridge at the Canadian border, where the um, the accountant who's there to enforce the liquor laws takes takes a little drink to soothe his nerves. So you, you start with that, and a lot of it just really boils down to criminals bad, cops good. You know, even at the very end when they tell them, well, it looks like they're going to appeal prohibition. What are you going to do? Now I'm going to get a drink. 
And it wasn't even about the rule of law enforcing it because ultimately we're made to identify with what, what is an act of just cold-blooded murder from Elliot Ness when he throws uh, Nettie off, off the roof. Um, he was just mad because that guy killed his friend, so he chucked him down a flight of, uh, you know, at the side of a building and into a car. There was no justification for that. Even earlier, I think a lot of the shootouts, one reason I said this feels like a Western, you know, a Western, you have these shootouts because the the prospect for law and order is so minimal that, you know, everything just kind of devolves into violence. And in here, instead of isolation, you have this corruption. But I think the movie just wants us to enjoy watching good guys shoot bad guys the way they set them up as good guys and bad guys. But I, I feel like... You know, ultimately, it was just kind of self-defeating and and hollow, especially at the end when when they make that that prohibition crack. You know, because that that's the one prohibition everyone kind of agrees was was mistaken, uh, so far as I could tell. But it, it, when even Elliot Ness and his guys didn't seem to believe in it, it it gave. It gave us little little tension and little reason to care which one of these characters shot which. Well, I mean, but the the evolution of Ness because he's one of the few characters that actually has somewhat of a character arc. The character arc at the beginning, he's very much of we're going to follow the rule of law. You know, I I believe in what I've done, and by the end of it, he's throwing guys off the roof and he's uh, threatening judges uh, with lies to get them to do what he wants them to do. I mean, and, and the idea is the you know he's following the advice of Malone of what are you prepared to do. You know, to if do you believe? And he has the speech. It's like you know, I you know, basically, I violated everything that I believe in. I believe, and what I've done, I believe I'm right. You know, uh, you know that kind of that swing in his moral curve, if you will. You don't see that as a kind of a comment. And also, like, do you think he's justified in the end? What everything he does, threatening the judge, throwing needy off the roof, is is he right? I mean. Me, no. I don't think he's justified. <laughs> but I feel like the movie didn't want uh, me to see him as a fallen character as much as somebody who embraced pragmatism. You know, I think that that was Sean Connery's character's whole thing was not, you know, you, you're you're going to sell your soul to put this guy away as much as, hey, if the only thing that would work is this. Right. You not only have to meet him at his game, but you have to beat him at it. And I think, again, with with kind of the superficial portrayal of the the gangster characters, it just made it very easy to say, well, these guys need to be stopped. They blow up children, you know, for money, essentially. So let's go shoot them. I agree with what Matt's saying very much. I, I think that they cheated the the Ness character. I mean, he's a real life person, and I, I know this movie is meant to be entertaining, but I think that that in the end, Malone's Malone's thought process and his teaching definitely had an effect on Ness's maturation as a, a police officer or an enforcer of the of the rule of law. But at the same time, I think the fact that they basically turned him into a cold blooded killer, where at the end, where he's just you know, throwing bad guys off the roof because, you know, they did a bad thing. It, 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 that is the – I think that 
that cheapens the Ness character, especially at the very end where Matt's talking about, you know, he's at the very beginning of the movie, he's saying it to the, the, what were they? The, the, the fleet cops or whatever they were, the, the chosen ones, nobody's to drink at all. I mean, you, that stops right now. And then at the very end, what what's going to happen when prohibition? Happens? Oh, I'm just going to take a drink. It's like, that's exactly what he wouldn't have said. And I think that's the part where I think the moral universe obviously is good cop or, or good guys, bad guys, white hats, black hats. But in the end, I think they they made Ness less white hat when they really did not have to do that. Well, see, that's why I disagree. I think Ness became more like Malone and Malone was pragmatic. Malone worked in that system, didn't didn't participate in the corruption, but didn't fight against it. You know, that's his moral dilemma at the beginning, trying to decide whether he's going to join Ness. And is Ness going to do what he needs to do to actually make some legitimate change in a real world? And, uh, you know, the, the idea that Ness at the end says, yeah, I'll have a drink. You know, it's to me, it's like he's still that's almost adopting his moral code. I'll do it because it's legal, not because it's wrong, uh, you know, which it, it, I think at the beginning, if someone were to look at that, that character if it, it, to say, and say, he, well, yeah, he's a teetotaler, which in real life he was not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, yeah he, that, you know, that would be uh, the impressions of a lot of people. He just doesn't believe in alcohol at all at the beginning of the film. But by the end, it's like, no, you see the difference in this character. It's, you know, that's what he was here. He enforces the law, but now he's more of a pragmatist. You know, it's this, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll have a drink when it's legal. That's just, and that's how he defines and distinguishes the difference. What about the music in the film? A score composed by Ennio Morricone, uh, who also composed The Mission with Robert De Niro and one of Bobby's favorite films, uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, I, I kind of like some of the bold choices he made. I like the, the music they had for whenever Capone was on screen. It, it was very unique and memorable um, riffs. At the same time, I think that the music was really caught up in the, the melodrama of the story as well. Cause whenever Elliot Ness was around his family, we had this really treacly, <laughs> you know, violin music that was just so over the top. Like, yes, here's the family who prays before bed and is super nice and, you know, smooches and notes in the lunchbox. And then, you know, De Niro's on screen and it's all like, you know, kind of, kind of heavy and bombastic. And it was just, um, it was lacking in any subtlety. I will agree it was lacking in subtlety because the Godfather was coming out every time De Niro was on screen. But I have to say, my when I offered my wife to watch this film with me last night uh, for the review, I mean, I've seen this movie five or six times, but I, I had it on and she was in the other room just making doing a puzzle. And she was commenting on the soundtrack. She was, you know, she was like, that sounds like a really good movie. And it, which it, it was enjoyable. And I really liked it. And it was the music that was doing that to her. I am a very much a Morricone fan. So this is one of those films where I really like the, the music. And I think that he was Oscar nominated for this. And I don't think that he should have lost. Oh, definitely not to The Last Emperor. But I, I just thought he did a really good job on this. And I would buy the, the soundtrack of this. Not that I'm going to run out and do it, but I would uh, potentially. It's 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 that good. 
it's definitely uh, fitting for this film. All right. What they're trying to do. <laughs> All right. I own the soundtrack. I love the soundtrack. I don't think it fits the film. <laughs> I really don't. Really? No, I really, really? don't. And I, but I love the music. I really do like the music for itself. I I think it it uh, as you kind of said it's your wife saying that sounds like a good movie. Well, that's cuz the music is telling you this is what you're supposed to think at this point. And I agree with everything Matt said is it is not subtle in its approach. And there's there's certain aspects of I go the music is almost to me too modern for a period piece 1930s film uh, and it somewhat takes me out but I, I but I still love the soundtrack I, I just it, I think it's a, a great soundtrack but I do I was expecting Matt to say nope hated it that overbearing you know uh, insisting upon itself uh, it's you know it's it really kind of takes me out because it just uh, it, there's certain sequences in the film especially the action, action sequences where that's it's really kind of like it's almost screaming, this is action, this is action, pay attention, you know, and it's, and it, it's not very subtle and it's in the way it's approaching it. And then the softer portions, as Matt said, with his wife, with his daughter, it's just like, ah, we're all supposed to go, ooh, isn't that lovely? And it, 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 it's butterfly kisses. Yeah. Eskimo kisses too. Uh, it just, it, I, I don't think they did it. He did a good job as far as matching music to material, but I still love the music by itself. And it's a soundtrack that I've listened to many times over the years. Well, do you remember a movie from the same era called city heat with Burt Reynolds and 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 Clint Eastwood? Yeah. That one was, there was the same exact era and it was the same type of, of film. And that one had a very similar kind of an uplifting, uh, soundtrack. I mean, it wasn't more a cone, but I I would think that that was that would be a really good apples to apples, and I really enjoyed that film because of the music. God, I did I did not enjoy that, and I loved Clint Eastwood, and I loved Burt Reynolds back in the day, and when they made a film together, I was so excited to see it, and then I was really disappointed in it, and I've only seen it like twice since then both in the 80s oh so it has okay. been a tremendously long time so i don't recall the soundtrack but i, I do recall it's a, a very similar period piece mm-hmm. all right ending of the film a couple things i want to talk about the ending first of all uh there was originally a different ending for the movie uh that they were going to have a scene where the camera is shooting a close-up of de niro's face as he's being warmed up for another shave very similar to how the film begins with the uh, shave of Capone while the reporters are around him. There would be reporters around him again, except for in this sequence, he would be in a jail cell. Uh, and another thing uh, about, and this is more real life than in the, uh, for the, for the ending of it, but Capone actually tried to uh, uh, plea bargain in the trial and the judge wouldn't hear it. And he did attempt to bribe the jury and the judge found out about and switched the juries uh, in the case. So that actually did happen. But it was interesting that he tried to plea out the case initially and the judge refused it, which kind of shows that the judge potentially was not on the take, at least in real life. So uh, the ending of this film with 
and I'm very curious of Matt's perspective on the legal drama of the attorney just saying, my client's guilty. That's we're all done. (laughs) He's punching me out and saying, what the hell are you doing? But I'll just say he's guilty and we're okay with that. All right. Let's just move on. So uh, Bobby, what did you think of the ending of the film? I don't like the idea of De Niro in, in the chair as being the the ending because at the beginning of the film, it was appropriate because Capone is the target. At the end of the film, Capone's going to jail. I don't need to see him in jail because the truth is the movie's about the untouchables and Capone is just a target. So I think the fact that they ended it with the untouchables or at least the, the leader of the untouchables leaving, getting a drink is is perfectly appropriate the way it, that they ended it, even if I don't like the line. But I think that – I mean <laughs> what was the second one you said? It was a, supposed to be a – Oh, the second uh, one was in real life. The jur- This whole jury thing oh, yes, the actually jury, did occur. Yeah. But he well, tried to I'm plead not, out. I'm not you guys. Yeah, I'm not you guys uh, in your legal uh, – I mean you guys are wizards at, at the legality and I'm nothing. But what I do uh, – I think, again, I'm going back to that that screenplay, and I know that from a, drum, a dramatic standpoint, they want to make sure that people know that the judge was on the take. You know, Everybody in, in, in Chicago was on the take except for these four guys. I think that was wrong. The judge was clean. I think they should have kept the judge clean. They had every right to just to say that the jury is is tainted and move them across. I think that would have been just fine. I think it was wrong to to implicate a a judge in real life that was perfectly uh, legit. Well, they they lost me when they were in the judge's chambers, and for some reason, the you know case chief is making arguments to the judge. And then, you know, everyone leaves the room for some good old-fashioned ex parte, um, <laughs> which apparently has a dramatic outcome on, on the case. And then, um, yeah, the change of plea followed by the punch in the face was, was again, needlessly over the top. Um, How many times have you been punched in the face, Matt, by your client? Uh, none in a professional capacity. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that'd be, uh, Your Honor, I, I think this relationship is is a little broken. <laughs> you know, the the punch in the courtroom, and the other thing that that kind of bothered me as well, and you could tell in the in the scrum at the end, everyone in the in the gallery was like yelling at Capone, like they all wanted a piece of him, which didn't seem wise or necessary, um, given as as you know, you guys have already mentioned the the crime syndicate lived on um I, i'm not sure that that needed to be i again it, it was it was an appropriate ending for the way this movie had built itself up but all of it i think was just a little too over the top and they didn't need to make it any longer with a scene in jail yeah i i will absolutely agree with that i don't think circling back and bookending it with that um, shaving scene added anything to the story uh, I, I, I like the way, the, at least the, the, the visuals of it, the way it opens up, but I don't think coming back really did anything that would enhance the film or the ending of the film. I like the way it ends as it is. You know, I, obviously, it, mine and Matt's careers now in the legal world, when I get to films such as this and they do stuff at the end that is just going, 
that should never fucking happen. <laughs> Just like, yeah, you're not going to leave the case agent sitting in the, the chambers with the judge having an ex parte conversation. And everybody just walks out like it's not a problem. You know, like, oh, guys, excuse me for a second. I, I'm going to say something for that. That's exactly why you don't allow him to do that. It's ex- for- I'm just going to uh, baselessly accuse this judge of corruption in hopes it influences the outcome of this case. Correct. And I'll be right back. Right. You know, the the I, I know what the film is going for and I know what the film is trying to com- communicate as far as like uh, Ness's evolving moral code. But. You know, and then the to me the the absolute ridiculousness of judge. My client is going to change his plea. Would like to change his plea to guilty now, and that thinking that means anything <laughs> because it doesn't. You can say it; it's wonderful. He has to say it. That's what I need to hear from him. And for some reason, I just don't think Capone was going to change his plea to guilty. That just, although in real life he wanted to, but. But I think that that also shows that the – I think at that last scene in the, the courtroom, the director lost his way because I, I think – I don't know if it was the script or if it was the direction itself. But I was – I noticed that even the very first time I watched this film in the theater, I remember when the De Niro character or the Capone character was standing in front of Ness and they're, they're yelling at each other, which they didn't really do. In real life, but they, and all I heard was De Niro repeating the line, repeating the line, repeating the line, and I remember that in the theater going, "Is that it? That's that's the Al Capone is going to be yelling something like that back instead of you're dead or you know your entire family is going to be dead. I'm going to come and get you all, whatever a, a threatening guy." And he it, it was it, it sold the character short in the end, and I think that was that was unwise. Well, and I think part of it may have been because Capone's ultimate fall is really uncinematic. <laughs> it's that right. he got convicted at trial for tax evasion. You know, one of the most notorious criminals of all time uh, potentially ordered the execution of many, many people and ran Chicago for all intents and purposes for most of the 1920s. It just did kind of goes out on a whimper in a trial uh, uh, for tax evasion, not, you know, not something exciting, not murder, you know, tax evasion. And and how the, do you the syphilis might have been kind of exciting? <laughs> well, getting the syphilis for him might have been exciting. But, but uh, you know, it's <laughs> it, it, you know, it just how do you make that cinematic? And so I, I kind of give a pass of like, okay, we're going to take creative license to create some drama here. Uh, and we're going to have to shoot out with the, the gunman on the roof of the building right before, you know, yeah, that would have right. called court for the day. You know, Hey, the bailiff just got shot out in the hallway. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're keep going. We're keep going here. Plus the reality of you already, you know, you already basically swore in this jury. Jeopardy applies. You've got to declare a mistrial. And you're not just going to switch a jury from a different courtroom. You've got to start over. I mean, that's just not the way yeah, it works. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know the law, but I know a divorce group that just walked in the door is going to come in and now judiciously <laughs> go after Al Capone with all the trial that has just been happening. 
Yeah. I, I'm kind of curious. Did they have jury divorces back in the 1930s? I, I'm I, that that kind of take took me back. Now that you know, as in in my legal profession, I'm going, wow, you have to convince a jury that you can be divorced. So, no, you must that stay would married. Be exciting. <laughs> that, that would. Be. Uh, Johnny Depp. <laughs> All right. Three hundred pages of text messages in every trial. Oh God! Just <laughs> oh man! Stop! You're making. I'm already thinking of work tomorrow. All right. Uh, Films Legacy nominated for four Academy Awards, winning one. Uh, that would be Sean Connery winning Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Uh, lost Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, Best Music, Original Score, and Best Costume Design. All three of them, they lost to Last Emperor, which I agree with what Bobby said earlier. Uh, that was robbery for the score. I can see the art decoration and the costumes, but the score, uh, Last Emperor, to me, is very unforgettable. Or, sorry, a forgettable film as far as score. Uh, AFI, in 1998, the film was nominated as one of the uh, 400 films considered for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies list. Didn't make the top 100. In 2001, it was one of the films nominated for the 100 Years, 100 Thrills list. Did not make the top 100. In 2003, Al Capone and Elliot Ness were both uh, nominated for the 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. Did not make the top 100. 2005, uh, AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores uh, did not make, I believe it was just the top 25 scores, so it did not make the uh, top 25 scores. And in 2008, AFI's 10 Top 10s, it was nominated for the category of Gangster Film, uh, did not make the top 10. Uh, it's included in the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die book. Uh, there had been talk of Brian De Palma directing a prequel film called The Untouchables Capone Rising, starring Nicolas Cage playing a young Al Capone. Uh, that never developed. And then Rotten Tomatoes has it at 82% critics and 89% audience. And that is the legacy on The Untouchables. So, going around, Bobby, what do you think of the legacy of the film, and would you put it in your top 100? I think the legacy is fitting. I believe that Sean Connery, though, deserves to be remembered more than he is for this film. Even though he won the Oscar, I think people have kind of forgotten this film when his – I wish that there would be a list of like ultimate wingmen or wingwomen in film. And I'll bet he's in the top – easily top 50, uh, but some one of those characters that actually teaches or is, is the most helpful to their lead character and he's definitely that i mean this is the kind of guy that you want to to teach the the world how how things work so that it's a, a much better world a stronger world so yeah i think he deserves to be remembered more the rest of it is pretty fitting i mean this is not the greatest gangster film uh it's a little hollywoodized it definitely uh i the writing i think let some of this down I think everybody tried their best. Uh, De Niro just wasn't a good Capone, but I, I think it's a, a good film. Sean Connery is a great actor and in this role, and he's the part to remember. Uh, and, and I think that just cut out his scenes, and, and that would make my day. But uh, no, this is not in my top 100, but it is definitely a movie. That if you haven't watched it, it's worth watching, but – I can see why it's just outside of people's top 100s for a reason. Matt? Yeah, the legacy is appropriate to me. I, Sean Connery's performance is 
is the highlight of the movie. And it again, it's such a great role of his. So I that I appreciate and that I think deserved the accolades it got. Otherwise, I think this is a pretty forgettable movie. It, it has its moments. I think it's overall just the storytelling is a little too simplistic. I think it was more violent than it needed to be. At times, it was just distracting when, you know, like all of Sean Connery's blood was in his hallway and he somehow held on to deliver the last message. So I, I, I think, um, you know, it's good, good 80s action piece, but but nowhere near my top 100. All right. Yeah, this would be one of those picks. Bobby says them all the time. It's more of a nostalgia pick and a personal pick. I I saw this film. I did not catch it in the theater. I caught it on video shortly after it came out. Took it home on a, a summer afternoon to watch it, and just immediately fell in love with it. I mean, it was a film that I I, I when I got the first opportunity to buy it, I bought it. One of the first movies I ever owned. I just it just gravitated to this film and still like it to this day. It's just an enjoyable watch. And when I catch parts of it on television, I usually finish it off. I think there's it's, we've talked about some the, the, the main three, but there's a great cast in this film. And we barely talked about Andy Garcia didn't, who didn't have a lot to do, but I really liked him in this film. Uh, you know, Charles Martin Smith uh, playing Wallace. I, I really liked him in the film. I mean, there's just a lot of really, really good actors uh, do, playing, very very small roles even the district attorney is i kept going okay that's that guy i know he's in eight men out but what else? i couldn't remember his name and you know and i was just struggling with it and then i was like oh that's that that's that sheriff guy from james bond from the two james bond films and i'm like god i would never it, it took me a while to even figure out that that's where i r- remembered him from and you know he does a really good job in a very very small role which by the way is completely uncredited he didn't take any credit for uh, the role and he he had a, lo- a lot of scenes in the film uh with Kevin Costner and Sean Connery early and then Kevin Costner at the end. Uh, but I, I really like this film. It's just a, a lot of fun for me to watch. Uh, it's not high in my top 100. It's definitely towards the bottom there. Uh, I can see there. It, it's got flaws, and I've crapped all over it as far as the, the reality of some of the realistic circumstances uh, that would never have happened in the real world, which uh, causes me to you know look a little less on this, but I still had a fun time just watching it uh, for this podcast. All right, well, that does it for this month's review of The Untouchables. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. As we stated before, you can follow us on Pinterest or Twitter at MHMemories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, don't forget to subscribe to our account on YouTube. Uh, Subscribe to us there. Ring the notification bell so you can get updates when we post new material. uh, And leave us a comment about either our opinions about the film, uh, the film that we're reviewing, or a suggestion for a film that you think we should review as one of the top 100 films of all time well that does it for this episode of movie house memories join us next time when we are reviewing bobby's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time 1992's a few good men until then i'm patrick and i've never taken a drink but i might have to start after this podcast and i've never had a butterfly kiss in my life (laughs) was that connery (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) okay
uh, we'll see you all next time at our podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Movie House Memories, Hiding Your Reality, is provided courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHN Podcast Network, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. <laughs> <laughs>